should therefore come as no surprise that I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 12. And if it does come as a surprise, then we have problems with goldfish memories or haven't been keeping up. Psalm number 12, and we will read these eight verses together. Psalm number 12, to the chief musician upon Shemineth, or Shemineth, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said, with our tongue will we prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side, when the vilest men are exalted. Amen. Amen. So again, another psalm, and the theme is, is not so much the, the enemies of God's people directly, although they are certainly mentioned here, but again that going all the way back to Genesis 3 and verse 15, that, 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 that um, strife that exists between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's, it's in every, every psalm to a, a, a greater or even a greater degree. It's very present, and it is in Psalm 12 also. So we have... Uh, As way of introduction, and maybe before we introduce the psalm itself, just very briefly look at the superscription. And the superscription is almost exactly the same uh, wording as Psalm 6, except Psalm 6 says it's on, on, um, on those instruments, on stringed instruments, Nuginoth. But it's exactly the same. It's to the chief musician. It's upon Shemineth or Shemineth. Um, and just to remind you what we said last time, it, that word Shemineth is from the word for eight or eighth. So it would musically be speaking about an octave. So maybe the instruments were to play the octave above the sung psalm. Or, this, or the, the harmony for the psalm would include octave harmonies. Or maybe Shemineth is just the name of a tune that they used. Again, any of those options are are conservative understandings of what that word must mean. But as we read this Psalm of David, we hear the words, and I would suggest, of a king, 
as he surveys the spiritual state of his kingdom. You almost imagine him observing uh, below the palace and uh, considering the people walking in the streets and, and maybe himself going in disguise amongst his people to listen to what they're saying and what they would think and how they interact. And so we could see it as a king. We, uh, Calvin would suggest that this may be an observation of the times of King Saul. So when David was as an outcast, when he was being hunted down, and this was his, his overview of King Saul's kingdom, which of course is also very possible, certainly wasn't in a high state of spirituality in Saul's day. Observing the state of Saul's kingdom, which would one day be his. And so he has a, a great interest in the state of the whole nation. And whichever one of those two it might be, it's clear it's not a good report. It's not uh, good what he observes. He observes the king's subjects, the king's servants, and he must admit that true heartfelt and holy religion is at a very low ebb in Israel of his time. And we may even say here that we could see a greater David, Christ himself, surveying the state of his church at times of low spirituality and declension. Whichever one of those, and they're all applicable, I've given the title at least that David surveys his kingdom. David surveys his kingdom. The, the, the greater David uh, surveys his church is also a possibility. Uh, we, we begin with verse uh, 1 and gives us the prologue to the psalm, the prologue. It begins and sets the scene as it were, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth. And then saying in a slightly different way and in that classic Hebrew parallelism, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. And David is opening a prayer. It's a prayer of help. It's a, a prayer of need. Help, Lord. And so it's not a personal thing. He is very much, this king is like a priest king. He, he's praying for his people. He's interceding for his people. We see something more of Christ in there then. He's praying to the Lord and lays bare the dreadful situation that he observes to be happening in the nation. And who are these godly? Well, these godly are, it's a word that's used consistently throughout the Psalms. It refers to pious believers, true believers who are walking with the Lord. Truly saved and truly walking, they are the godly. And the word that's used here is the word chassid. Now you may think, well, and? But it's the same word that a Jewish sect uses to describe itself, the, the chassidim. You may have heard of them, the Hasidic Jews. And they get that word, they get that word, they entitle themselves the godly. Which you might think is not very modest to call yourself, your whole group, we are the godly ones. And that may be the case, but on the other hand, it, it is God's own term for his own people. Because they are godly. They belong to God, and they are to live a life according to God's standards. They are to be holy as he is holy. They, they are his people. He is their God, and so they are the godly. 
the idea here is, is of those that are pious, they are holy. Um, that's really the, the, the heart of, of that word. And if, okay, again, the use of the word the faithful, again, that's speaking of those who believe. They are full of faith, the faithful ones. Uh, and what's interesting is the word that's, uh, that's translated here as faithful is derived from the word for truth. Again, so the idea that these are true believers and they believe in the truth. And again, it's that same word, truth and faithful, all come from the same root of the word, amen. The idea that something is, 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 is true. True, Lord. Amen, Lord. That idea of that word of truth. So the godly and the, the faithful, they cease and they fail. What's interesting is that they're called the children of men, which is literally the children of Adam. But these know something of grace to be the children of the second Adam. But these believers, they are ceasing, they're failing. And what can we understand when we read those two negative words? Well, they are either backsliding, backsliding on a grand scale, uh, these godly, these faithful, um, or, and I think which is more possible, more probable, is that these are elderly saints. The elderly saints are dying off and they're not being replaced. They're not being replaced. They're failing. They're, they're, their numbers are growing smaller and smaller. The true godly, the true gracious believers, Lord, they're disappearing. They're, they're, they're passing on and no one is coming to take their place. And maybe that's uh, something that reminds us from the preaching on the Lord's Day morning, the idea that there are to be new babes in Christ, there to become strong men in Christ. And then as the Lord uh, causes them to mature in the faith, that they are to become ripe in the faith, gracious. But the church has a, has a lack of new believers then. Or the church is filled with weaker brethren that, that are carnal. They think they're spiritual, but they're carnal because there is little grace to be found. And therefore, they're not growing in grace. They're not maturing. And so you could say, when you look at the church, you could say with the, with the, with the cry of David, the godly man ceases. Where, where are the ripe old men and women, the, the gracious ones, the gentle ones, the forbearing ones? They cease and they fail from among the children of men. They're not growing in grace. They may have emotion, they may have religion, neither of which replace grace or compensate for the lack of grace. And so we see here that, that the observation is made, it is a discerning observation, being able to discern that which is truly gracious and truly mature from that which is not really gracious is not mature, is even hypocritical, and as we move on we'll find out indeed hypocrisy and masks and, and superficiality are, are what is, is seen. So we need to learn to discern as David discerns here. But we d he sees, and this is then the summing up of verse 1, there is a, a noticeable, not only a downgrade in grace, but as we're going to discover in the coming verses, there is a noticeable apostasy in the land. 
and that land is in dire need of true spiritual revival. Remember, false religions can be zealous, and yet they're spiritually dead. They're dead in trespasses and sins. You know, about the Hindus, the Hindu extremists, the, the Muslim fanatics, uh, they can spend all of their lives being zealous for a lie and for false religion. They are not touched by the Spirit of God. They are dead, and yet we can see people can maintain for decades upon decades upon decades a great religious zeal and yet actually be dead. And that's something that we see in the land here. They are of God's people, but they're not God's children. So the prologue, prologue to the psalm we've seen. Secondly, we come then into man's word, into this, this dark and difficult uh, area. Man's word, secondly. And we see in verse 2, well, verses 2 and 3, we'll see man's word. On verse 4 also. Firstly, we see the tongue that cuts. The tongue that cuts. They speak, verse 2, they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. So David is here, he's now opening up more clearly. He's bemoaning the quality of those that are taking place of the godly. This is the next generation in the church, he's saying. Here, look, Lord, this is the next generation. And he complains to God about them, and he, and he may and he must. And he describes their unspiritual behavior in a few ways. He says, firstly, that he says they are, they are vain. They are vain. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. That word literally meaning empty, even superficial. There's no true content. Or they say one thing, but it, it has, has no meaning. And people's religion can be like that. They can say all sorts of things. They can describe all sorts of things. And yet it's either not true or it's just show. You know, as much as real as a theater is, theater's not real. You know, the proscenium arch is not really a frame. You know, it's just some painted cardboard or wood. And what you see on the stage, again, is all fake. Uh, the lights are there to give, a, uh, give an atmosphere, but it's not the true lighting of the sun. It's certainly not a cold morning. It's all, it's all put on. It's meant to, to give an impression and give an idea, but it's not true. Even the backdrops and the clothing and the makeup and all that, it's not true. It, in that way, it is a vanity because it's presenting to be one thing, which, of course, is the, the whole idea of theater, pretending, but it is not that. But what's terrible is then when people come into church and they put on a show. They put on a theatrical show. And I saw some, I saw some terrible examples of that, especially when I was in, well, I wouldn't just say the charismatic world. I remember in a, in, a, in a backsliding denomination in Holland where you would have people that would come into the church and endeavor to be spiritual in some ways. And, and yet when you got to know them, th th there was nothing there wasn't even an earnest but modest hope. But it was all show, and they could get into office, into church office and all sorts because they knew how to put on that show. So vanity is that which is empty, that which is superficial, or that which pretends to be something that it isn't, but then you open it up, it's empty. 
Secondly, flattering. He says, these, these, this next generation of believers that are coming to replace the truly gracious ones, the vain with their words, but they have flattering lips. You see how they, they're connected together, of course. The word flattering lips is, is literally from a word, word meaning smooth lips. They have smooth lips. And that word smooth is even related to the word faithless. So they have s flattering lips. We could use the word flirting lips. Um, words that are meant to impress others. Words that are meant to entice others. Even words that are meant to deceive others or impress them. There are those that do spend a lot of time. And you'll notice this maybe from today when we've listened and, and got some more discernment from Psalm 12. You might notice this uh, amongst Christians in this congregation or as you're going around the, the greater church in Calgary um, or other people that you might know and you realize that they spend time talking about how spiritual they are as opposed to talking about how good and gracious God is. One is truly spiritual, the other one is meant to impress you. It's, it's, it's sort of flattery double-hearted double-hearted is a third description of this this next generation they speak vanity everyone with his neighbor with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak that a double heart that the, the idea of a double heart is them being dishonest they're being duplicitous uh, they're lying. This seems to be like a, well, it's, it's not, double heart is, an, is, a, is a good translation for what it actually says in the Hebrew, which uh, it does actually say here what it literally is, I believe, does it not? And heart and and heart. So it's talking about they have a heart and they have a heart. Do you understand? So, so they have, as it were, an, a heart or emotions and, and feelings and desires that they relate to you, but that's not their real heart. It's like having two books of, account, of accounting. You have the one that you show the taxman, and the other one's the real one with the money that's been laundered and whatever. That, I think that's the idea that you have in, in, in the Hebrew, that there are two hearts, the, the public one and the private one. Double heart is actually a, 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 an ideal translation into English because when I think of a double heart I also think of things like forked tongue you know a man speaks with forked tongue he's got a double heart he's saying one thing and he means another hidden motives is a good way of putting it hidden motives and, and it continues on into verse uh, verse 3 as well that this double heart is a heart that speaketh proud things so well, yeah, this is not, uh, it's not a very positive thing that, that David describes to the Lord about what he sees in front of him, what he sees on the streets of Jerusalem, say, what he sees in the land. But those three taken together, vanity, flattering lips or smooth lips, and a double heart really points to verbal deceit. Verbal deceit. And that deceit goes further because we have the idea that this is used against God's people. Verse 5 says, for the oppression of the poor. The Lord describes this as oppression, that you have two-faced hypocrites and unspiritual people gaining acceptance in the church, maybe being looked up to in the church, even worse, gaining church office, even worse still, getting behind the pulpit. And he says that's oppression, but we'll get to the verse 5 when we get to it. <coughs> 
So we see the, the tongues that cut, the tongue that cuts. It cuts you, it gossips about you, it lies to you, it doesn't do you any good. But that tongue then we see in verse 3 becomes the tongue to be cut. That God will cut the tongue and he will cut those lips, verse 3 and 4. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue. He will cut off the tongue that speaketh proud things. Who have said with our tongue will we prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? We, we see here that the Lord is, is, will yet give that clear answer. We see in verse 5, we see that the, the Lord is going to give that answer that we're going to look at in verse 5. What we see here, here's the hope that that David has that the Lord is going to answer and when the Lord's going to answer he's going to deal with those lips and those tongues he's going to deal with them he will cut them off and he might do that graciously he might cause them to be convicted of the sin of the lying and hypocritical lips and cause them to repent and, and to believe and and they will change because everybody that has a true meeting with the living God changes and so their lips will be changed that those flattering lips will be removed and replaced with praising lips and lips that speak the truth and the tongue will speak humble things so there's no need for anyone to flatter you there's no need for anyone to impress you there's no need for anyone to build themselves up if they're truly changed by God. But notice that these people here that we read of, uh, that are mentioned, are the exact opposite of the godly that we read in verse 1. The godly man, the faithful fail, uh, but these are clearly the ungodly and the unfaithful. They have an atheism. See this? Who is Lord over us? Who is our God? You know, we are our own God, they say. So they have an atheism, they have a self-idolatry. They determine uh, that they are God and they will, they will, they will say what they want to say. But we understand this, they also have a false assurance because they do not believe that God will deal with them. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips, verse 3, and then we hear their words, with our tongue we will prevail. They hate the truth, they hate their neighbor, they hate God, they hate morality, and they are ignorant of the coming judgment. But what we see now is the Lord will remove man's words and he's going to replace them with something far superior as we come into this section of the psalm that speaks about God's word. God's word. Hear God's reaction, first of all. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. This seems to be a, a wonderfully quick answer to David's petition. And of course it could be a, a, a bemoaning of, of this godlessness that's happened for many, many years. But it's in the space of that one psalm would seem that David pours out his heart before the Lord saying, look at the state of thy people, God. And then the Lord answers swiftly. 
We don't always have to wait for decades or even centuries for the Lord to answer the prayers of his people. It can be quickly. It can be very quickly. But the answer is always according to God's perfect time and perfect methods. At verse 5, we see God's reaction. And he declares his, he's heard David's petition, and he declares his godly motivations. His divine motivations are twofold. He says, for, so this is the reason why he's now arising, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, these two things, now will I arise. So again, who are the poor? This is not any social gospel. This is the oppression of the poor in spirit. The true godly are oppressed by the wicked who are exalted. Even within the church, that which is bringing us to the last verse, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. And the poor are oppressed. I would suggest you see that in in apostate churches, wherefore reasons of history, reasons of habits, reasons of loyalty, that the people of God would remain in a church even when the leadership and many other people in the congregation have, uh, have abandoned the gospel, have abandoned morality, have abandoned uh, the word of God. And they have a religion and they're bringing in all sorts of, you know, these days, all sorts of, uh, the, you know, the feminism is the important thing and, and social issues and Black Lives Matters and, and the LGBTQ uh, plus brigade. And, and that's all being given the glory and all the honor and that's all being talked about. And, the, and these people who should leave but become oppressed, knowing that something's wrong, knowing this is the wrong emphasis, and you're being oppressed by liberalism and by all of this wickedness. And then he talks about the the sighing of the needy. And again, that's the same people, the oppression of the poor for the sighing of the needy, describing the same people and the oppression that they're having from such as we've been examining. And so God's great and glorious compassion towards his people. He loves them, you see. He loves them, even though they are the poor and outcast in society. They are needy. They know that they're needy towards him, and they need his help now. And he loves them. It is for them that I will arise. We could add other things. He arises because of his promises made unto Abraham, because of covenantal promises, and they're all true as well. He does it because of election, yes. He does it because he's adopted them as his children, and and he is their heavenly father. That's all true. And he does it because he loves them. It's interesting. It's It's not said, I will do it because David has prayed this to me, but that's also true. But he says, because I'm compassionate towards those that are being oppressed, and if I may use the language of verse 8 again, by these vile men, the vilest of men, the wicked, that I will arise. And a wonderful word. It's as if God is, is serenely on his throne, and when the apple of his eye is touched, he's a king that stands up immediately as it were. You can imagine him standing up out of his throne, grabbing one of the spears from his soldiers and leading them. Arising into action, protect, preserve his people. 
to deliver his own children even out of the middle of his own people. So God's reaction, see God's response. And God's response is that we see, as we will read it shortly, is that God is not like these people, these vile people. As they are unlike him in their ungodliness, he and his lips are so unlike them. There's no flattery in his words, there's no pride, there's no vanity, there's no deceit to be found in him or in his word. And the contrast is enormous. In fact, it's striking. Because he goes on to describe his words. Their words belong in the sewer of hell. My word is a perfect and a pure word. In fact, the Lord goes on to describe the very word which he uses to to protect and to preserve his people, to comfort his people, to save his people. So we see three descriptions given. Actually, three doctrines are given. Firstly, divine words. Divine words we see in verse 6. Verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, a silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So we see, firstly, they're divine words, so they are the words of Jehovah. They are the words of Jehovah. I hope I'm running over time. It's God's word. He, he has authored it. His spirit has inspired various penmen at various times. It's his word. He has revealed it. It speaks of him. It speaks of our need, of, our, our need of him. His words to us, his words for us. These are divine words. The doctrine of divine inspiration, if we want to just make it very clear. God's own handwriting. God's own voice. And they're pure words. The divine words, but they're also pure words, as we see in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Modern-day silver is purified twice, maybe three times. It's heated up, and then the, the, any scum, floating scum is, is taken off, and then it's poured out into ingots, um, and once that's, once that's uh, um, solidified, it can then be melted again, and any more scum, any more impurities that rise to the surface will be removed again, and then after that, you've got very pure silver. So the idea of purifying something seven times, well, that's an awful lot of work for any silversmith uh, to do, to purify that silver, or the, the silver miners to, to make something pure. But the, so even the silver, the silver merchants and, the, and those acquainted with the silver industry in ancient times would understand seven times? That's just not necessary. But of course, the, the, the Lord's not putting this hyperbole in there for no reason. What he's saying, if you, if you think silver is, is, is very pure at two purifications, and at three, it's incredibly pure, my word is like silver that's been purified seven times. 
There's another aspect to that use of that word for seven. We have the idea of the word seven is the number of completion, the number of perfection. So it's, it's, it's like perfectly refined silver where there are only AG atoms in there. There's nothing else in there. It's pure as pure can be. And my word is like that. Of course, that's impossible for us to have silver that is so absolutely pure. But not for the Lord, of course. There is no lie in God's word. There are lies reported on in God's word. The lies of the devil are perfectly reported on. The failings and the sins of the prophets and the patriarchs are honestly reported. But it is no lie. There is no false doctrine that is taught. False doctrine is explained and warned about, but God does not deceive his people. There is therefore no false hope in the gospel. For some people, the the offer of Christ in the gospel, come unto me, is, is too simple. You could say it's too pure, but it can't be too pure. If the word of God and the promises of the gospel and the words of comfort that are given in the scriptures are real, there's no impurity to them. You have to take them at face value. Of course, other parts of the scripture will shine upon it and help us to understand the context and keep us away from false doctrine or error. But there is no false way to be found. Being taught, exemplified, and instructed and commanded in the word of God because these words of Jehovah are pure, are the purest words And of course, the extreme purity of the word of God is indicative of the God that speaks them. If they are the words of Jehovah, and we know that Jehovah is pure, and he is holy, that he is faithful, then we have holiness coming forth from holiness. And we should expect nothing else. So we may not understand it, We may not understand the promise, we may not understand the doctrine, but we can say this, I may not understand it, but I trust him that spoke it. And there is no lie in God. And therefore I believe it, although I don't understand it. Although God would have us to understand it and believe with our heads as well as with our hearts. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. So we see they are pure words. That the word of God is absolutely faithful. It's reliable. The reliable, the doctrine of the reliability. And we may even say the sufficiency, therefore, of Scripture. And thirdly, they are preserved words in verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So the Bible that the church has always had, because it's been added to over the centuries, the Old Testament church had it until the completion of the, the prophecy of Malachi. And then we can look at the New Testament and the 27 books thereof, but the, essentially this, the Bible has always, the, 
The Bible that the church has always had has been preserved by God himself. It hasn't been preserved by the church, it's been preserved in the church. And thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. What generation is that? From a corrupt generation. From the ungodly, from the faithless. We do not need, shall I say, as a church, we do not need uh, the Munster Institute for New Testament Research to tell us uh, this year and every few years when they've got more funding uh, from the Bible publishers uh, to determine what the New Testament contained and, and what the exact uh, words were. We don't need that. We, we do not believe that an academic institute preserves the Word of God. In fact, they would say they don't have the Word of God. We will never have the Word of God. You've just got to trust these academics every so many years to bring you the next edition of the New Testament. So I would say, no, God in His Word says, I don't need you. God preserves His Word. I have his word. We have his word here. We have the Masoretic text of the Old Testament. We have the Textus Receptus of the New Testament. And God has preserved it in his people. Preserved from generations of liars and deceivers. And there's much more I could go in to say that. To explain that. But we'll just mention that this evening because the Lord mentions it. That's the doctrine of divine preservation. There are many good and conservative men that will speak of the doctrine of divine inspiration, but because they have been won over to modern Bible translations, uh, they forget Psalm 12 and verse 7, the doctrine of divine preservation. God preserves his word, and he has preserved his word. Every word. How can, you, how can you preach the whole counsel of God when you don't have part of John 8? You don't have the ending of Mark 16. You don't have uh, the verses regarding the Trinity in 1 John 5 and so many other places. How can you say that we can preach the whole counsel of God when we have an, a redacted Bible, we have less than Paul had? If Paul had revelation as well, but you understand what I mean. God preserves his word. I believe that he preserves his word. I don't believe that the New Testament church did not have his word until Westcott and Hort in the 1800s suddenly found other, other manuscripts. So we've seen the prologue, man's word, God's word, and then we fourthly we have the epilogue. The epilogue, the closing part of this Psalm, the wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. It does seem in some ways like a proverb just attached to the end of the psalm. And at first appearance you think, what's this got to do with, with the rest of the psalm? Well, I've, I've already uh, referred to it a few times. You see, it's very relevant. But what it does teach us is the truth of the curse of despising God's word. These people have despised God's word. We see who they are with their flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. With our tongue will we prevail. We will win. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? And so when the godly ceaseth, when the faithful fail, their place in society and in the church is replaced by such people. 
by lying, flattering, deceitful, godless people. Very religious, of course, but godless. And who will rule over these godless ones that are increasing in number in society and in the church? Well, godless ones. Godless rulers will be exalted to rule the godless. The worst of them will rule over them. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. So if you see the actual logical order, men are exalted into power and that gives free reign to the wicked. Well, we don't have to look very far when we think of certain business leaders, when we think of politicians. And if we were to consider uh, the time of David, well, the courtiers and the administrators in the royal palace in Jerusalem, you might even have to say, uh, Your Majesty King David, some of your family also. I'd like just to close with a quote from Calvin. Speaking on this psalm, he says, David does not here accuse strangers or foreigners. He's not accusing the heathen, but informs us that this deluge of iniquity prevailed in the church of God. Let the faithful, therefore, in our day not be unduly discouraged at the melancholy sight of a very corrupt and confused state of the world. But let them consider that they ought to bear it patiently, seeing their condition is just like that of David in time past. So not to be passive, I would add, that was the end of the quote, but not to be passive, but to do what David did. David petitioned the Lord. David was, as it were, praying for revival and reformation, that the Lord would deal with these people, that the Lord will cut off those lips and the tongue And that the Lord would have mercy and that the Lord would answer. And how important it is, therefore, when we've considered the state of the Word of God, the, 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 the purity of it and the power of it, to be more and more biblically literate ourselves, that we would be biblically literate, that we would be biblically obedient, that we would, as we mentioned on the Lord's Day, that we would grow in grace, that the empty places in the church, and we have empty places here, we certainly have no local eldership. But we need more and more godly, humble and obedient Christians whose, whose, whose lips speak of Jesus and his glories and doesn't boast about themselves. And therefore, let us not add to God's word with human logic and reasoning and theories. Let us not take away from the word, which we always do when we add to it. Let us believe the word and live out the word uh, that God would set up godly men and women, faithful men and women. And they are the very contrary to, to what we read here into verse 8. Just imagine if we were to read that and then the, the godly walk on every side when the most righteous of men are exalted. Now, that is a biblical doctrine. And may God grant that in our own land. Amen. Let us sing. Um, now, let's quickly pray, and then we'll sing the remainder of Psalm 12. Lord, we do thank Thee for Thy word, and Thy word is a precious and a pure word.
a word that thou hast authored. It is a divine word, a word that is sufficient. We need nothing else beside it for our knowledge of thee and our knowledge of salvation. And it is a word that thou preservest. And we thank thee that thou hast preserved thy word. We thank thee that thy word is not net gender neutral. Thy word is a word that reveals the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that our King and our Priest and our Prophet is the true God-man, that He suffered and He bled and He died. Lord, that we do not have to be uh, consumed with the lie of feminism, and then be deceived by feminism into accepting sodomy. But we have the pure words of God. Lord, remind us of that truth when we come to read thy word again tomorrow morning or tonight. How pure and how faithful and how true thy word is. Let us, let us tremble before thy word. Let us be hungry for thy word. And may thy word change us to the glory of thy name. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.